Let's turn to John chapter 12 this morning. We have, in a sense, chronologically gone a little bit backwards. You know, we've we got all the way into John chapter 18 and 19, and now in this particular time, as we get close to uh, Palm Sunday, next Sunday and Easter, we go back to that section in John that deals with that. And we have here just a few days before Passover, and that will be the, the section that we're dealing with here, as Jesus and the disciples are at the home of Simon, and there's a special event here that I think will challenge us today. So if you're able, will you stand with me as I read from John chapter 12? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, remind us of who you are, of your holiness, of the inestimable worth of this grace that is given to us through your Son, Jesus the Christ, the one who willingly left your right hand and took on the form of a man that he would give his life for the likes of us, for the likes of us. Teach us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 12, and I'll read verses 1 through 8. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus therefore said, Let her alone, in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with me but you do not always have me. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. I'm kind of a, uh, kind of a car lover, I guess. I got that from my, my dad, who was a car lover, and I read Road and Track magazine since I was uh, six or so, and and uh, as I've mentioned before, I had an MG Midget that, that was, uh, did not run more than it did run, which is typical of British cars of that era, and used to go out and tinker with it and work with it. And, and you know, I, 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 remember I, I bought it for $500, and I had it for three years, and I sold it to somebody. And I only lost, you know, I sold it for $300, but he had the same look in his eye when he bought it that I had in mine when I bought it. You know, the potential, and boy, this will be fun, and, and, you know, who cares about how many bloody knuckles you have from, from rusted bolts that you can't get off and things like that. Well, well, this week as I was, I was looking through this, I did a little research about a car, and it's, it's called the Type 41 Bugatti. Okay, and for car lovers, the Type 41 is kind of the, uh, uh, the, the mecca of classic cars. The Type 41, better known as the Royale, is a luxury car, and it's 21 feet long, weighs 7,000 pounds, has a 12.7 liter straight eight engine in it, okay, and it's 19, it was built in 1931. The 1931 Bugatti 
Royale. This particular car that I have in mind is called the Kellner car. That's who it was made for. The Bugattis were, they had a frame and then each each body on top of it was designed for the buyer. This coupe was sold in 1987 for $8.7 million, 1987, to a Swedish property tycoon named Thulin. Well, the car was later offered in auction in 1989, and the bid was $11.5 million, but the reserve on the bid was $15 million. So it was not sold at that time. Now, Thulin's uh, property empire collapsed, and, and it was sold at that point for just over $15 million, $15.7 million, uh, to a Japanese conglomerate who uh, promptly put it in the basement of their corporate headquarters, and there it sat for several years, until they sold it for what in 2001 was 10 million pounds. Now, I didn't do the math and change that into dollars, but um, considerably more than the $15 million it was sold for earlier, I believe. The ownership of that car is presently unknown, but it has been shown by a Swedish dealer who brings it out every now and again. Now, he doesn't drive it, understand. They just show it. Uh, and I found a, you know, an, a car insurance worksheet online. In fact, I found several of them, and I tried to find out what it would be to insure this car. Uh, it didn't compute. Okay, they're just, it, it, just, it, it just gave me zeros on it. It, it. You know, How do you insure the most expensive car in the world? Well, you don't take it out and drive it, but you've got to insure it so it doesn't get lost in the fire or some, something like that. In 1985, Christie's Auction House sold one bottle of wine for $160,000. This bottle was a Bordeaux. It was 1787, a Chateau Lafitte. Do you like that, my French? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Its great age alone would have ensured a high value, but on the label was etched THJ. THJ. So it had come from the wine cellar of Thomas Jefferson. Okay, and that heightened the value even more. Uh, but understand, a bottle of Bordeaux from 1787 would just be a bottle of vinegar. Okay, Bordeaux has a lifespan of about 50 years, certainly 200 years, is beyond its capacity to hold any uh, of that richness that it has. Now, a few years ago, a bottle of 1869, Chateau Lafitte, was sold for almost a quarter of a million dollars. Now, how many of us are ready to spend a quarter of a million dollars for a bottle of vinegar? Okay, and, and, and a reporter asked the, the, the buyer or the, the one who was bidding on it, they, because they were on the phone, they said, will the buyer open it and drink it? I, I just open the bottle of white vinegar at home and drink that. Okay, I think, I think I've never had a 200-year-old bottle of Bordeaux, so I really don't know, but everybody says that I read, it's just turned to vinegar. Now, why do you spend a quarter of a million dollars for a bottle of vinegar? Hmm. Would you take your Bugatti Royale Kellner Coupe, valued at, at some 10, 15, 20 million dollars, would you take it down university to Sonic to get a shake? Okay. Would you uncork your 200-year-old bottle of Bordeaux for your buddies at the Iron Bowl when you're sitting around watching it? Hmm? Would you take your 1850 Double Eagle $20 gold piece down to the Jiffy Mart and buy snacks with it? No. Okay, the easy answer is no. These things are 
we put a value on them, but they're almost priceless. You don't take the priceless out and spend it unless you are spending the priceless on something that is even more priceless. Okay? You don't spend the priceless on anything unless it is to obtain something that is even more priceless. Like the man who is plowing the field in Scripture. And as he plows the field, he comes across this treasure. And he sees it, which was, was very common in, in that period of time because people would bury their treasure whenever the uh, invading army was coming. They'd bury it out in the field. And if they were taken away, they might forget it. So here you have a man plowing a field. He hits this treasure. He looks at it. He covers it backs up, back up. He goes and he sells everything that he has and he buys that field. Or the pearl of great price. The man finds, he's a pearl dealer, and he finds this, this pearl that, that is more valuable than anything else he has ever seen. And he goes back and he sells everything that he has so he might obtain the pearl of great price. Now, my question is always, well, what did he do the next day to eat? Okay, because he's got all of his wealth tied up in this pearl or in this field. Well, unless you sell it for something that is even more valuable. Mary has received something that cannot be obtained by any human means. So in light of that, what is a jar of priceless ointment? What is a jar of priceless ointment? In our passage here, Jesus arrives at a little village which he is very familiar with, Bethany, because just just prior, not, not too many days before, Lazarus had come out of the grave. Remember, he'd been there four days, and Jesus called him out. He was a dear friend of, of Jesus, Lazarus, and Martha and Mary were. And here he is getting ready to come into Jerusalem for his very last days and all the things that are involved in that. Jesus understood this very well. So, in a sense, he comes to Bethany to enjoy the, the, the fellowship of these close friends and just some, some time of rest. And again, we find the sisters, Mary and Martha, and, and Martha was doing what she did best. Verse 2, so they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. That's what Martha did. That was her gift. That's what she was about. I mean, we all know people who are like this. They are gifted with, with service. Uh, you invite them over to your house for dinner, and then as you clean the table, there they are. They're cleaning the table with you, and they're in the kitchen, and, and they're wanting to wash the dishes. And you say, no, no, relax. I've got to do this. No, no, I'm, I'm going to help you. Because that's who they are. And that's the way that Martha was. She had this high gift of service. Now they're in the house of Simon. And uh, um, Matthew and Mark tell us this. Uh, and Simon was a leper. Again, this is found in the, in the parallel passages in the other Gospels. Simon was a leper. And, and he must have been a healed leper. For, for the very obvious reason that he has a house. That people are in his house with him. And the, and the way that he was healed must have been by the work of Christ. Because there was no other cure for leprosy at that time. Other than the power of God. So we think that Simon was a leper that had been healed by Christ. He invites him into his house. There is this, this wonderful time of joy as Lazarus is there as, and he's been raised from the dead. Simon is there. He's been cured of leprosy. Mary and Martha are there, the sisters, and they're just doing their, 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 their thing. Martha is serving and, and, and she's busy here, but Mary has her gift as well. And that's what the rest of the passage is about, this priceless gift that Mary gives because she has been the recipient of an even more priceless gift. Let's look at verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. Now the, the Greek is spike nard. 
because nard is the original plant and the original um, uh, substance that the, the ointment is actually made from. Spike nard grows in the Himalayan mountains between 5,000 and 15,000 feet. Now understand this is a first century woman who has a vial of spike nard that has been harvested at such an altitude in the Himalayan mountains over in the area of the border of India, what is presently the border of Indian, India, it has been brought all the way back to Israel. It has been distilled down to this essence, um, uh, which is a very costly perfume. So it, it, in the mind, in the world of a farmer, in the worker, even of, of a woman at this day, this is a priceless item that she has, this priceless vial uh, that she has. Of course, it's only priceless until you find something to use it for that is even more priceless. Mary has found a use for it. Now this priceless commodity that she has will be used to express her love and her care and her joy and gratitude for something that she has received that is worth even more than this vial of nard. Just imagine all the men reclining around the table, and, and that was the, the context of the day. The men would kind of lay down at, at a table. They wouldn't sit. They would lay down at the table, and the women would be standing around the edges as, as they served. The men would eat, and when they were done, the women would eat. Um, and, and in comes Mary. Now she just walks in. There's no discussion, apparently. It's, it's not relayed here in any fashion. She just comes in, breaks the seal on this vial, and begins to pour it first upon Jesus' head. And then the other gospel writers say it ran down his back and in his arms. And she gets down and she has this bit and she pours it on his feet as well. She didn't ask anybody. She didn't say anything. Now you can imagine this. everybody's eyes are this big because they can smell it. They know what it is. They know its worth. And they look at her pouring it upon Jesus. Now, I can also kind of imagine what went on in Jesus' heart, that this, there must have been, and I'm just reading into this, there must have been this great joy in the heart of Jesus to know this outpouring of love and gratitude that he is receiving for the work that he has done in Mary's life. He has raised her brother from the dead. That must have been a clear sign to Mary who Jesus was. She must have understood that he is the one that they had been waiting for, the Messiah. So her hopes and everything lie in him. Lie in him. This is the most precious commodity that probably anybody in this room has ever seen before. And there it is being poured out on Jesus. And then it gets, gets even more. And then she gets down to his feet. And she takes her hair and she undoes her hair. This is something that Jewish women did not do except in the presence of their husbands. They never took down their hair. And here she is. She takes down her hair. We can only imagine it's this long flowing bit of hair. And she begins to rub his feet that she has anointed with this precious oil with her hair. Now in our culture we go, oh, you know how much shampoo it's going to take to get that out? But this was a sign of gratitude and a sign of love. It was an expression of just, uh, just overflow from her heart. And it is poured out right here on Jesus' feet. Gratitude for the gift that she had received from him. And then the taking down of her hair points to her humility. 
It's an action of humility towards Jesus. And this act of Mary's humility really heightens and, and even, if we want to say, more, more scandalizes the view of humility of Jesus in just a few days when there they are in the upper room. And what does he do? Takes off his cloak, grabs a basin, and goes around and washes the feet of the disciples. That was the job of the lowliest servant. And here you have the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who has created all things through his word, through his power. The Lord has used him to create all things, and he washes the feet of these sinners. Let's talk for a moment about the gifts that we give, the gifts that we receive. If you uh, go talk to uh, De Beers, you know, De Beers, the diamond people, the guys, they tell us that if you're going to buy an engagement ring, it has to be how many months of your salary? Anybody know? They suggest two months of your salary, okay? Now, as, as many perhaps of you, I got engaged in college, and if Judy's ring would have rested on two months of my salary, it would have been one of those wrappers from the cigar you know, and she's still wearing that. I don't. I didn't have any salary. Now, perhaps some of you uh, got got married a little bit later, and um, you were able to do something uh, more substantial. I did a wedding hmm, a while back. It wasn't here. It was someplace else. And and the groom and the and the best man and I are waiting kind of in the wings for uh, for the service to start. And and I'm just going through the checklist. And I say, you got the wing, got the rings. And it says, yeah. And he puts them in my hand. And this is the way it went. He put it in my hand, and I went, hmm. Because huh? first off, they were platinum, so that, that's heavier than gold. And then it was a, a set. You know, the engagement ring and the ring were, were fused together uh, at the day for the wedding so that they went on together. They weren't separate. They were just the biggest things I'd ever seen. I mean, not gaudy, but big diamonds. I mean, big diamonds. And, and the engagement ring had big diamonds on it. The wedding ring had big diamonds on it. And I looked at him with that look saying, you can't afford this. And, and he says, remember, she's a doctor. He said, we went looking for rings. And she said, those are the ones that I want. And he said, I looked at her and said, you're kidding me. I can't afford that. She said, do what you can. I'll pick up the rest. <laughs> But, but they were, you know, as an expression, we like to do things that are an expression of our love. We give gifts at, at special times, you know, graduations, anniversaries, weddings, you know, engagements, things like that, or special accomplishments. And, and you want to be generous with what you can. She was generous with her own gift. I, you know, I, I know. If you remember the story of the gift of the Magi, here you have a couple who are poor, a husband and wife. She's known for her beautiful long hair. The only thing he really has in life is this pocket watch that he carries around. So along comes Christmas. He sells his pocket watch to buy combs for her. She cuts off her hair and buys a watch chain for him. And there they get together. She no longer has the long hair. He no longer has the pocket watch. But it was this wonderful gift of love that they were willing to sacrifice whatever they had for the other one. Okay? So here I have, I love you so much that I'm going to put aside any desire in my heart, anything that I think is important that I'm going to get rid of or sell off so that I'm, what I have, so I may demonstrate my love for you. Sometimes we give these great gifts. And here Mary had one gift that was almost priceless in her world. 
but she had received something far more valuable from Jesus Christ. So she uses this gift of this spike nard to anoint Jesus as a demonstration of her love and gratitude. Let's turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. We go to the Old Testament here because this is an example of, how do I say, the value of, of a gift. Okay? You have received something. You want to demonstrate your grace, your gratefulness in that. And the example here is from the life of David. First Chronicles chapter 21. Verse 21, let me set the stage here. David has gone off the reservation, so to speak, and decided that he needed to have a census of how many fighting men that he had. Really, the security of Israel was left in God's hand, and for whatever reason, David gets in his mind, I've got to count the number of soldiers. So he goes and he has the census, counts the number of soldiers, and the Lord comes to him and says, you have done a terrible thing. You did not trust. Therefore, I'll give you three options of of how you'll be punished. He picks the hand of the Lord. And it says here in verse 14, 70,000 men of Israel fell. David repents and he lays himself before the Lord and the hand of the Lord relents. And we come to verse 21 and David wants to do something for the Lord as a sign of his gratitude here. So he goes and he says, I'm going to build an altar and sacrifice to the Lord, verse 21. And as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and prostrated himself before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, give me the site of this threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord for the full price you shall give it to me that the plague may be restrained from the people. And Ornan, he's just a guy, says to the King David, he says, take it for yourself and let my lord the king do what is good in his sight. See, I will give the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges for wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give it all to you. And David's response is this. But King David said to Ornan, no, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord or offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. David said, this is my sin. This is my demonstration of gratefulness to the Lord for his forgiveness and for his care. And I will not give the Lord an offering that doesn't cost me anything. Now, David is king. He's got pretty much everything at his disposal. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. David paid right through the nose for this site. Okay, Ornan got a good deal on this. But David said, it's got to cost me something. I'm not going to give the Lord something which I got for free. Okay? I'm not going to give the Lord something which does not personally weigh upon me and cost me something. Verse 26, Then David built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and he called to the Lord, and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offerings. And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into his sheath. Okay? It's in a simple expression of the overflow of David's gratitude for what the Lord has done in his life. Remember Psalm 23? What about my cup? My cup 
overflows. Why does it overflow? Because the things of Christ are being poured into the believer's cup. Remember, our cup outside of Christ is full of what? It's full of me. It's full of my anger, my bitterness, my pettiness. It's full of all those things of sinfulness. And along comes Christ into our life, and he begins to pour into our cup until the point where it overflows with the things of Christ. Okay? The joy that they have experienced, both David and, and Mary, are overflowing in these actions that are very, very costly to them. Now, Mary's action was, was an action of extravagance. It was an action that, that did, I'm thinking she did not plan this. This was not something that she had down in her book and say, okay, when Jesus shows up, I'm going to do these things and these things and these things. I think it was simply an overflow. She saw it. She saw her Lord there. She knew how much he had done for her, and she grabbed it and said, I've got to anoint him. Now, there are those who calculate their love. There are those who think about it and, and calculate what they're going to do for the Lord and say, well, you know, gee, I've got a lot of things to do today. And, and, and they weigh it and they go, I'm, I'm going to have to cut my devotion short today because I've got so much to do. It was either Calvin or Luther would say, you know, I've got 20 hours of work to do today, so I better spend two more hours in my devotions so that I'm ready for those 20 hours of work. Okay. Now, there are those people who say, well, you know, I know that the... Uh, the church has got this, this thing going on. They, they need some funds. And, and gee, well, I don't know. I, I have to weigh it out and, and think about it. And, and when we get back from, from all our, our excursions this summer, I'll see what's left over. And then I'll, I'll get involved. Okay? See, the act of love, the act of love is not stupid, but it is extravagant. Love is saddened that it can't do more. Love is saddened that it can't give more. Okay? Love is saddened that, that you know, I could only get you a, a, you know, a half a carat diamond engagement ring when I would love to give you a 20 karat diamond you know but the hope diamond I couldn't get to because it was locked away but it's this extravagance of love that we want to do these things and then along comes Mary who has this priceless item and she pours it upon Jesus who'd given her something worth far more it is a sign of Mary's extravagance of the love that she had it is a sign of Mary's humility as she understood where the gift came from that was of greater value than anything she had in her hand. John chapter 12, back again. Mary takes a priceless treasure, poured it upon the one who had cleansed her from her sin. That was love. This great demonstration. And then the moment is broken because Judas opens his mouth. These are the first recorded words from Judas in verse 4. Verse 5 actually. He says, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? Okay, and given to the poor people. Now, 300 denarii, the average worker got a one denarii a day. So that had been 300 days of Labor, so 300 days of wages. That was the monetary value of this item. For Mary, she, she was never going to reach that. But Judas seems like the only rational one in the bunch, doesn't he? Just think, all that money wasted, he just poured it on him. What could we have done with that? How many people could we have fed? How many people could we have helped? How many people could we have clothed with that amount if we'd have sold that? But John, who's writing his gospel, not 
as these things go, but later, and is looking back, verse 6 said, now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. Okay, And we doubt that he was known to be a thief other than for Jesus at this time because they wouldn't have left him in charge of the treasury or the money box. He was actually stealing from the poor box that he wants people to, to put this 300 denarii into so he can give it to the poor. In reality, he's thinking, put that 300 in my charge. I'll take care of it. You know, I'll go to Bermuda for two weeks or something like that. He's, he's got his eyes on this. He doesn't care about the poor. He doesn't care about the poor. But this reveals his true heart here. This reveals who Judas really is. And again, it's the first glimpse that we get of him as he opens his mouth. And Jesus puts a stop to this right away. Verse 7, let her alone. It is a command. Let her alone. She's doing this basically because of my burial. Now, whether Mary understands that Jesus is going to give his life. Now, now he has said this before, but everybody still doesn't grasp it. I mean, he has said it in plain language, but it still didn't penetrate their head. It wasn't very long until he would go into Jerusalem and give his life. So whether she knew what she was doing or not, or whether it's simply just this great extravagance of love being poured upon Jesus, he says, this is a sign that shows my burial, because that's what they did for bodies. They would anoint the bodies. She had saved this priceless liquid for him because he had done something even greater for her. And maybe she knew that she would. he's going to Jerusalem. There are people who want to arrest him. Maybe I'll never get a chance to get close to him again, and I've got to do it now and express my love now. Then we come to the last verse here. Verse 8, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So Jesus is setting something up here. Care for the poor is a sacred duty because the poor are close to the Lord's heart, so they need to be close to our hearts, very plainly. Those who share his life have to share his concern and act as he guides. So Jesus here doesn't say ignore the poor. He's saying that there are sometimes things the Lord calls us to do when the door is open that we must do that take priority. And here is the exaltation of Christ. He said, you've got me with you. This is a demonstration of the love that Mary has for me, of the work that I've done in her life. Care for the poor is important. Exalting Christ is more important. So this anointing makes sense given who Jesus is and the events unfolding. I mean, this is the picture of salvation that we have here in this day and the coming weeks here leading up through Easter Sunday. So the division or the diversion of funds from the poor to this point is valid because Christ is here and it is an image it is a demonstration of who he is in the response to the love that he has bestowed upon Mary in this particular instance so Mary had something that was priceless this bottle of nard she used it as an expression of love towards the one who had given her something that was even more valuable so what has Christ given to you let's pray Lord, what, uh, what wondrous love is this, that you should bestow salvation upon the likes of us, that the depth of our sin and, and, 
and the degree of our sin was so great that every sin, even if there was only one sin, it would take the death of the Son of God, that we might know forgiveness for it. But yet here we are, the multitude, and our sins are many. Our hearts, as the prophet says, the human heart is totally corrupt. Who can understand it? But yet you don't wait for us to get cleaned up. You come with your grace and your mercy, and you rain it down upon us. And you call us simply to come to the throne of grace and and say, Lord, you have done this work in my life. I want to repent of what I have done. I want to know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Come upon us today, Lord, that we might get some picture of the extravagance of your love for us. And that, Lord, that we might respond.